Hello and welcome to the Learning From Legends show with me, Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. First is Hamish Douglas from Magellan, who looks at the threats and opportunities for investing in stocks in a coronavirus world. Hamish is a global investor and his fund has done brilliantly over the last um, probably decade, to be fair. Second is the Treasurer of Australia, Josh Frydenberg, on how the economy is set for a big recovery. And then I ask him whether he will be playing Scrooge and cutting spending to decrease the deficit in the budget in two weeks' time. I don't want him to do it, but is he planning to do it? Find out by listening to my upcoming interview. So without any further ado, let's catch up with Hamish Douglas from Magellan. Hamish, thanks for joining us. A pleasure, Peter. Great to be with you. In fact, the last time I saw you was with your wonderful conference down at the Entertainment Centre. And, um, you know, as you always do, you, you go through the things that could work out for you and the things that could be challenges. But I know you didn't mention the word pandemic then. And I taught economics at the University of New South Wales and never taught Pandemics 101. Is this, has this been something that really has even shocked you? Well, of course, it's, it, it shocked us. Uh, Peter, is, is it outside the foreseeable that you could have a pandemic? Is it something we talk about like a big nuclear terrorism event or a biological event in the world? And we used to put a pandemic in those sort of things, you know, the, uh, the, the unknowables, you yeah. know, those, those black swans that, that, that could happen. So this is a classic black swan. When you talk about them, you don't actually think they're going to happen. No, uh, no. At, 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 the, at the end of the day, and you probably don't quite think through what will actually happen if they occur. The closure and, of economies and businesses. We're, we're, we're invested in businesses like um, KFC and yeah. Starbucks. And yeah. for the life of us, we never thought of a KFC or a McDonald's that you'd be concerned about their business models in a recession or something. Yeah. We'd never thought that all their They're restaurants would be proof, closed. And they? Their they were recession proof. We yeah. never thought their revenues would go to zero for a period. So that was the extraordinary part of it. You think of recessions where economies could be down 5% or something. Mm. And then you think about the types of businesses that are more leveraged to those circumstances. You never think about circumstances where ordinary businesses' revenues could go down 80 or 100%. Mm. That was the extraordinary, staggering, staggering aspect of, 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 of this. So, you know, March, and we're now cycling a year away from this. Um, uh, but, you know, a year ago we go about, we were facing an event that none of us in our investing lifetimes had thought about really that scenario. We, we talk about these things because we design portfolios mm. to deal with that sort of nuclear strike, if you like, a, a sort of black swan event. Mm. And we were very fortunate because we run less risk. The portfolios actually held up very well um, for that event, but we'd never thought that very defensive businesses could be hit in the way that they were being hit. Yeah. Well, that's the past. People watching this want to know about the future. Yeah. So what's the year ahead for you, looking at your investment opportunities? How are you seeing the year ahead? Well, to be honest, Peter, my, my crystal ball isn't that clear hmm. at, at the moment. That's just being very, very yeah. honest yeah. with you at the moment. I think it, it's a 50-50 probability that these very strong market conditions 
uh, continue. Of course, there's massive stimulus in the world. We're all desperate to get the vaccine jabs in our, our arms. Everyone mm. wants to go traveling again. Everyone's talking about reopening mm. uh, the economies. We're very fortunate in Australia, our economy is open. But if you go in Europe, their economies are anything but open at the moment. There's a lot of optimism that these vaccine rollouts will reopen. There's huge amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus in the world. And President Biden coming in has kind of unleashed Mm. an incredible amount of stimulus in the US economy. So yep. that's a pretty optimistic picture. Um, but there are some concerns out on the, on the horizon and it's foreseeable in the next 12 months or so, and maybe a 50-50 chance, that we could have a meaningful cor correction of 20% or more in, in markets. So mm. on one hand, you're really optimistic, but there are some warning signs out there um, that Let's this talk about could, those. That you could have quickly a big correction as well. And that mm. makes this circumstance very, very difficult to gauge of exactly where to be. So what are the, 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 the key worries that you, and try and put them in order if you can. Well, let, let, let's think about some of the risks that are foreseeable at the moment. I'm not saying they're going to happen, but they're, they're hiding in plain sight at the, at, yeah. at the moment. The number one I would say, which we've done enormous amount of work, is what I call the virus escape mutation risk. That this virus is changing. We're all assuming that these vaccines are the panacea. Mm. They are the cure. It's going to get everybody out of it. But already we're seeing like the AstraZeneca vex vaccine only has 10% efficacy in stopping infection against the South African variant. And we're now starting to see some other evidence that some of the other vaccines aren't nearly effective against the South African variant, but that variant could change again. Hmm. So the vaccines already are being undermined. This virus keeps changing hmm. its nature. Will it escape the current vaccines? And if it did, you could push off this economic recovery that's been priced by the markets easily by 12 months. Yep. Okay. Uh, so, so, so that's the number one thing. Will it happen? Won't it happen? Well, that's predicting what nature will do. Hmm. Nature's already surprised us last year. Don't be surprised again. And if I went through the very detailed signs, there's enough canaries in the coal mine to say there are some warning signs hmm. out there that we could get an escape mutation. And, the tr and a lot of the scientists are very, very concerned on this, hmm. on this point. But hmm. they're not saying it will happen, but hmm. clearly that's a risk. City, city, Is city that, that directly affecting the way you're investing now? Or are you holding your breath and saying, I'm going to gamble that that's not going to happen and I'll, I'll play the kinds of investment that will benefit from a reopening? It's absolutely country. influencing our, our, our decision making at the, mm. at the moment, Peter, because a lot of the reopening trade has already been priced in. Mm. And, and so, so that horse is bolted. So, so the optimism's priced into markets and therefore if there's a risk that we may get a retracement from this optimism, mm. that is influencing. We, we don't want to go and put our bets on all the reopening trades when a lot of that's fully priced uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the moment. So it is influencing us mm. to, to, to a decision. So are you looking at businesses that A, are being ignored at the moment, but also could actually survive uh, the reaction to a second variant, because that was the thing that quite shocked me. It was the reaction of governments to the threat of, a, of the coronavirus that surprised me. And I'm wondering whether if a, if a second variant comes, will the reaction be different from governments this time? And therefore some businesses won't be as affected when you have a total lockdown. Um, absolutely. Uh, am I worried in our portfolio of getting 
a mutation risk. No, I'm not worried at, mm. at all. I think our portfolio is very, very well uh, uh, positioned mm. uh, for that. You know, we've got big positions in businesses like Netflix. That's a 10-year story. Yeah. But probably that, that, that will probably benefit. They'll probably get more sign-ups if there's another one, yeah. uh, another, uh, another variation. I don't think Microsoft's really going to be influenced uh, at all. I think mm. your, your example, like Yum Brands was really affected last time. Mm. I think now they've got all the digital operations going very well. They've mm. got curbside pickup. They've yeah. got a lot of drive through. So, so I think mm. if it happens again, they're going to be much better off than they were mm. They were last time. They will benefit if they can open up all their restaurant forecourts properly. Mm. Uh, so they'll get a benefit, but they won't be nearly as badly affected as they were last year. So I'm not losing a lot of sleep over mm. that issue. But if I was all in just cyclical investments at the moment, and I was very weighted to that, I may say, well, maybe a bit of time to take a few of those bets off the table, mm. you know, because a lot of people are pricing in this very strong economic recovery with almost no chance of anything going wrong mm. at, at the moment. So, so that's the number one risk. You, you said, what, what are the few risks mm. on my mind? Yep. The, the next risk on my mind, I would say, is there is some dot-com behaviour occurring at, at the moment. Mm. There, there's a huge investments at scale into areas that I don't think are supported by fundamentals. It's not all over the markets, mm -hmm. and I think the markets are logically pricing a lot of assets, assuming different macroeconomic scenarios. But we, we have, I, I call them crypto and meme, meme investing. Mm. So, you know, cryptocurrencies are worth almost $2 trillion now. Mm. You know, this isn't some small no. A small sort of Bitcoin itself is over 1.2 trillion. Tesla's up at 800 billion. I could cite a whole series of other businesses that have recently floated that have absolutely no earnings that have 50 to 100 billion dollar valuations. Just mm. get your mind around. Mm. These businesses have to earn a lot of cash in the future to justify the valuations, and these businesses could easily correct by 50 percent mm. very, very quickly. And there's trillions of dollars sitting there. What will cause these, I call these bubbles to burst, I don't know. Mm. It's inevitable they will. They could happen in three months, they could happen in five years. Mm. Um, but, but when you're invested in things that aren't supported by fundamentals and they keep increasing in size, I would say there's caution. But because there's such a fear of missing out, and I've heard stories, like one of my great friends came to me the other day and he said, look, my 90-year-old mother has been discussing with her friends, they'd like to get your view on Bitcoin because they think it's time to go in. <laughs> and that kind of, tell, you know, we've yes. all heard the stories of the taxi drivers and picking yeah. the stocks. Yeah. But, you know, if you have 90-year-old people starting to think Bitcoin because they've heard the stories of how many young people have made money out mm. of it, um, um, uh, there. So I think there is some warning signs in pockets of the market that there's some extreme behaviour going on. But I wouldn't put that across the, uh, uh, the market. Mm. Another area, of course, is, and we could talk about it, you know, whether or not the Fed can hold its nerve on monetary policy. Mm. You know, interest rates are the gravity of markets, as Warren Buffett says. Uh, the lower interest rates, the higher asset values are. And if you lift interest rates, the lower asset values, and we have very, very low interest rates in the world. The Fed said it's going to hold its nerve for the extended period. The RBA is saying it's going to hold its nerve. Um, well, we can come to whether or not I believe mm. it or not, but that, but that is a, a risk. If we had a, a reversal in monetary policy, a sudden reversal, that could be a very, very nasty shock to, to markets mm. in, the, in, the, in the world. So I've just cited three things. Yeah. Everyone's very optimistic at the moment, but mm. we've got 
trillions of dollars in asset bubbles sitting around, not across the whole market, mm -hmm. but in pockets of the market yeah. that's in yep. trillions of dollars. We've got a virus risk sitting out there, and we've got this big debate of whether or not monetary policy can hold its nerve in the world and keep interest rates uh, are really low. And that's before you even get discussions between the tensions between China and the, uh, and yeah. the United States. So th there's enough sort of things that are foreseeable that could shake the market's confidence at the moment, yet people's behaviour is almost totally confident because mm. markets are so strong and there's this sort of fear of missing out. Let's go to the interest rate story because yeah. a lot of people watching this would be wondering whether they should be in hybrids and whether they should be um, becoming more defensive, uh, particularly after your tirade. They'd be, they were all running out going defensive after after this. Tirade in inverted commas, uh, Hamish. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to panic no, people. No, people. No, no, but I said it's quite evenly yeah, balanced. But you've met people, yeah. people hear anything negative yeah. from someone like you and they instantly worry. So we'll get that in perspective. But you know, when you look at that, that big issue around interest rates, my personal view is, provided we don't get those curveballs you're talking about, the boom could be really, really big and the Reserve Bank and the Fed will be forced to break their promise. It's a bit like George Costanza in Seinfeld. It's not a lie if you believe it. And I think those guys believe it at this point in time. But if the boom gets bigger than expected, they might have to start raising interest rates well ahead of schedule. What do you say to that proposition? Well, first of all, I'd say if that's right, is hold on to your seats. Mm. Markets are not expecting that that that, no. that, that to happen. And that, that, that is a very, uh, as in the stronger the economy, the more nervous you should be about asset prices, yeah. which is a, that is bizarre to say. You normally say, well, if the economy is going to be really strong, that Great should news. be party times. Mm -hmm. That is not party, party times because you're right that the, uh, the Federal Reserve in particular, you really have to look to the Fed. The Fed is what really sets asset prices yeah. in the world, not the RBA mm. uh, here, here in Australia. It's important for our mortgages here in Australia, mm. but it's not that relevant to what overall markets will mm. be um, uh, priced at. My personal view here, Peter, is this is going to be a transitory speed bump. It may have quite a flat top on it. We yeah. may have a long period of, of extended growth, but the stimulus in the economy will fade. Mm. Uh, and once it, once it passes, I suspect we're going to re-enter this relatively low growth and lower inflationary world. But we're going to be tested on this. Mm. From the end of this year and through next year, yep. the markets are going to be tested because this period in the absence of a shake of a virus mutation or something, the economy, particularly out of the United States, is going to be very, very strong as it reopens yeah. with the amount of stimulus. And the short-term inflation measures are going to be pressuring up and the market's going to be pushing up longer-term bond rates. So we're yeah. going to be seeing volatility as that, that happens. My view is it's actually going to wash through. Okay. So but you, it's not going to look like it in the short term. Yeah, so, so maybe you're going to have to hold your nerve you might think it might, but by... End of 2022, the growth is starting to come off the boil and therefore they won't have to raise interest rates. I, I think that is the most likely scenario. We're yep. going to go through a period of very strong growth. It could go longer than people are anticipating. But there are some very, very powerful um, uh, forces at work why the world is awash with capital. Mm. Uh, and why we, why we have these structural forces. One is ageing demographics around the world, which is a very, very powerful force. But the other, this technology revolution that we're going through is not good for growth and inflation. And that sounds bizarre because mm. most of the revolutions we're seeing, just take cloud computing. 
we're replacing all the computing infrastructure in the world at every single office and we're centralising it in massive data centres with a few players. Mm. Massive trillions of dollars of capital are going to come out of the world's IT industry as that happens. The profits are going to be concentrated with a few players. Mm. That is a massive sort of product efficiency saving, but capital is going to be released. If you also think about what Amazon and online commerce is doing, all the capital that was tied up in physical retailing, as we go through, it gets released. You just think of the newspaper industry, the digitalization of media. We had printing presses, trucks everywhere. We're still consuming the same amount of news, but the capital to deploy the news getting to everybody in the world is going down. And as all this capital is getting released, hmm. it hasn't got a home to go to. And this is a reason I believe we're actually in this world of a wash with capital, which is going to keep interest rates very low. We're going through an extraordinary period coming out of a pandemic with mm. massive stimulus, which is going to look like the world's changing. But I don't think the world has changed. The structural forces at play in the long term haven't changed because of this pandemic. It will just feel like we're going into an inflationary yeah. period. Mm. And I think it's going to be a false dawn. And, and it, it could be that the world has changed and it could be the whole world becomes a lot more productive. In order to get real increase in economic growth, you need to create new consumption occasions where mm. people, you need to invent the new washing machine when no one's ever had a washing machine. You need to invent a car. You need to invent a pe something that people have never done before. Most of what we're seeing in the world is replacement consumption. It's mm. not new consumption. But could it then lead to, and, and you've always been someone who's trying to anticipate new trends and, and things that are changing. Could it well be that as there's less work in conventional areas like you know, making and even selling refrigerators at the at retail level, that the services economy escalates so normal men like you and me have a massage once a week, that we, we do stuff that we don't do now but it becomes easier to do because there's a lot more provision of service. I look in Oxford Street in Pennington, all those shops that once upon a time sold frocks are now doing nails and, and eyebrows and things like that. Could there be a, a different type of business created down the track? Yeah, I, I think it's a very interesting question, Peter. I, I think what, to, to truly drive new economic growth, we're going to have to create new consumption occasions. Mm. You know, I'm sceptical that people are suddenly going to be getting lots and lots of more massages, for instance. <laughs> That's an industry that already exists. Mm but maybe some form of travel and entertainment, which is a services industry, yeah. experiences. Will people be investing a lot more of experiences in the, in the, in the new world? Mm. And will that be large enough of scale to create the new airline industry or the new car industry mm. where trillions of dollars get invested um, uh, behind? Uh, I'd yeah, love to see our government investing behind industries like a service industry at scale, like yeah. our tourism industry. I used to make a joke when friends used to come to Australia, they used to say, you know, they were wealthy people, tell me something fabulous that I can do when I'm in Australia. Mm. And I used to joke to them, go to New Zealand. <laughs> and, and, and that wasn't being rude. Was that before a bridge climb? Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a while ago. But New Zealand actually had spent a lot of time thinking about yeah. catering in for that high-end experience. Yeah. And Australia hadn't, we got the most wonderful country in the world, which we could have the most wonderful ecotourism events mm. and other things and lodges and all sorts of things around. 
the country, but government policy hasn't really developed that. We've developed hotels in the city, mm. but that's not an experience like you get in New, New Zealand. And, yeah. and, and, you know, forward-looking governments really have to try and develop this service economy for new consumption mm. occasions. Okay, so let's, let's get out of the future and talk about um, the sorts of industries you've always liked, like when I saw you present, you, you like companies like Tencent and Microsoft and things like that. Is Beijing worrying you a little bit with some of your investments in China? I'm not sure Beijing's worrying me as much around our investments in China as, as much as the US-China tensions are worrying me about, hmm. uh, uh, about investments in, in, in China. You know, Beijing's attitude to its own tech companies, I would say is probably not that dissimilar to, to the West's views on their own tech companies. These mm -hmm. are very, very powerful companies yeah. with immense scale. And it's inevitable that the regulatory authorities of whatever countries are going to come in. So are we surprised that China's launched an antitrust investigation to its tech companies? Mm. No more surprising than we're seeing the Europeans launch anti-tech investigations mm. and now the Americans looking at antitrust into mm. into Facebook and Amazon and Apple and Alphabet and, 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 and so forth. Mm. So I don't think just because it's China and you think, oh, China's so different, they should be looking at the regulatory environment for operations there. If anything, I think the regulatory risk around that, it's topical today because they pulled the anti-IPO and they just fined uh, Alibaba. Mm. But I would say they will deal with it more quickly in China. They tend to be uh, more decisive and they're very supportive of the tech, tech industry because this is part of the geopolitical. They're very united behind mm. ensuring that they're investing behind tech because they want to have a standalone tech industry where, mm. where I think the, the US is sort of more all over the place about their sort of industrial policy there. Where, where you have to be careful on China is the geopolitical risks here. So if you're in a business, we, we have a very large position in Starbucks. Yep. So, you know, one of our concerns in Starbucks, a fabulous company, by mm. the way, with a fabulous, they're earning, opening 600 restaurants a year in China. Yes. They get over an 80% return on capital mm. on their restaurants in China. Mm. So a payback in two and a half years from putting capital into a new restaurant in China, opening 600 a year. Staggering. So it's absolutely staggering. But what we have to be worried about, they're not going to probably wrong foot themselves because they don't produce consumer goods like cotton or anything. They're not caught up in the cotton Zanjing debate. Mm. Um, and they're probably not gonna get caught up in the human rights sort of clash that's going on with some companies getting caught up at the moment. But if the tensions between China and the United States elevate around Taiwan or something, you could see a buyer's strike orchestrated by the Chinese government against US brands in China. Mm. And that could impact Starbucks business in China. So I'm not as worried about the Chinese government regulating their tech companies as watching how the reactions could happen as the tensions escalate. We thought the Biden administration would be de-escalating tensions yep, between too. China and the United States. But <clears throat> Biden is in such a domestic political bind on China that the Republicans are just waiting like, like vultures to attack him on it China that that he's too soft. Yeah. So if anything, they're wanting to show that they're even harder on China. Mm. So for domestic political reasons, Biden's unlikely to back down on China uh, at all. And that, that, that imposes, how do we deal with that? We diversify. We, we make sure we don't have too many eggs in just US branded risk in, 
in, in China, but yeah. we've seen it with Australian companies. We've seen Australian companies, China retaliate to show a message against Australian companies because of the geopolitical tensions between Australia and, mm. and China. Mm. So uh, are you comfortable with the valuations you're seeing with tech companies um, that you're invested in? Well, Peter, I think that's an obvious question. I wouldn't be invested in the tech companies we own if we yeah. weren't comfortable on their... Yeah. On their so on their what are your star tech companies that you're invested in? Well, our, our largest is Microsoft. And people mm. go, oh, Microsoft. Microsoft's now over $250 a share. Mm. We bought this at $28 mm. a share. Mm. And every time when it went to 50, people go, oh, Hamish, aren't you worried about the valuation of Microsoft yep. at $100? You know, it was 20, it's now 100, now 200. Now it's 250. It's trading around 30 times earnings. It's growing at 15% a year. Mm. They are still at the forefront of the digitalization of the world's economy and their cloud computing assets led by Azure, but also by their, what is known as software as a service, which is really their, their Office 365 um, uh, products. It's extraordinary the runway that, that, that Microsoft has and to be paying 30 times earnings for for a company growing at 15% year a year revenue at the moment with a runway as long as the eye can see mm. in terms of penetration in, in cloud, we're very comfortable. Yet we're up with dividends 10 times our investment since 2014, yet mm. still we have it as our largest yeah. investment. You know, if you look at something like Alphabet would be our second largest one, which owns Google, mm. obviously. They've now given transparency into uh, how much their cloud computing business is losing five billion, which showing is how obscenely profitable their search business is. Mm. So now they've kind of um, uh, give you a look under the covers, which we, we had always done a lot of analysis around that. It even, it was even better than we thought it was. The market's now re-rating, but their core search business is if you take out that, plus some of their other things like autonomous driving and other things, which is also losing money. Uh, if you take out the loss making businesses, you're buying um, uh, the Google business in the low 20s P multiple. Mm. So, you know, we, we, we're talking about, and, and another tech company, you go to Tesla, which we don't own, Tesla's on a thousand times earnings. So I'm talking of businesses at 20 yeah. to 30 times yeah. earnings that are some of the most strategically advantaged companies in the world. Alibaba's at 22 times earnings mm. at, at the moment in one of the strongest companies of the world. These are at market multiples, mm. growing at 30% a year. Yeah. Um, so. Are we comfortable about those valuations? Yes, we're very comfortable about those valuations because they're not caught up in what I call the dot-com meme tech. And there are some tech companies that have no earnings that are at breathtaking valuations. Some mm. of them are in China and some of them are in the, in the, in the Western world and we've kind of taken a pass. People made a lot of money in these, by mm. the way, but mm. people made a lot of money in 1999 in, yes, in dot-com stocks as well. And just yeah. because others are making money if things don't make sense to you, don't get jealous about people making a lot of money yeah. in things that, that have, could have huge air pockets sitting underneath their fundamentals. Well, here's my last question to you. What is the best question I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? That's a really interesting question, um, Peter. Um, 
I, I, we, we, we've had a bit of things about, you know, some negativity here. Mm. Um, and I don't want to be overly negative. I'm oh. just saying there are foreseeable risks yeah. out there. Yeah. And then people should always think about when there are foreseeable risks, don't mm. do things that are crazy at the mm. moment. Mm. It's, that's all I'm saying is just have a bit of caution. If you hear from your taxi driver you should be owning Bitcoin, maybe you step back and yeah. go, well, maybe that's yeah. not the thing I should yeah. do. Even though people have doubled their money or tripled their money in the recent past, so what if people have, have done that? The question I would say is probably, what are you optimistic about? Yeah. Uh, given, given you think I've been pessimistic, yeah. what am I optimistic yeah, this about, question. Uh, about at the moment? Mm. So what am I optimistic about? I'm actually optimistic about humanity, Peter, for, mm. for a number of reasons. Um, I think this pandemic's been a very good I example. When the world faces very, very complex problems, it's amazing watching science coming, coming to bear and how we found these vaccines. Vaccines have taken 10 years to typically mm. discover. We still don't have an HIV vaccine. Mm. But in a period of time which no scientists predicted, particularly these messenger RNA vaccines were extraordinary developments of, of science and how mm. the world uh, collaborated um, uh, uh, to get there. And I would say the movements on climate change and the technology we're now developing to solve climate change leaves me positive that that is a, and whatever people say if you take a if you take a thousand year view of this planet and you look around there's nothing else here peter people can try and colonize mars but i can tell you you wouldn't want to live on mars mm. and you know climate change whatever people think is a major risk for the only inhabitable planet in millions of light years of this place mm. um, and i believe we're custodians of this place for for many future generations and I believe in science as well. So I'm optimistic about science. I'm optimistic that humanity eventually takes the correct turn. It may not look like it in the, mm. in the short term. I'm, I'm, I'm very enthusiastic when I sit down with young people. We, sp we spend a lot of time, I speak along with young people and the optimism that young people have. We all get caught up at our age in politics and everything else and we get very depressed about mm. everything that's going on. Um, but it's nice to see some beacons of light. And I think this pandemic, as worrying as it was, looking at scientific progress, and I think it's going to lead to many more scientific advancements in medical science. Mm. And that makes me op optimistic as well about the future of humanity. So I think we all shouldn't get too down on ourselves and all too down by just looking at our politicians and everything else and, and, and see that there are some genuine positive things happening um, uh, around the world as well. Hamish, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. A pleasure, Peter. And that was Hamish Douglas from Magellan. Now, let's go and meet the Treasurer of Australia, Josh Frydenberg, and what he's going to install for us with the upcoming budget. Now, a lot of people here are investors, a lot of people, you know, have been trying to build their wealth and with all the fear of the coronavirus crash, the, uh, the bounce back has been fantastic. And one of the reasons why I thought the bounce back was an extreme possibility was because, you know, the courageous decision by the government to spend a lot of money and the Reserve Bank keeping interest rates really low. But Josh, what do you think the outlook is going to be for the economy going forward? Very positive. Um, we're confident that the momentum in the recovery can continue, although there are always risks, uh, particularly because we're not out of the pandemic just yet. There could be new variants of the virus. Um, there could be challenges for the, for the global recovery. But here in Australia, based on the data that is available to me, um, I'm confident that we'll continue to see that unemployment trend downwards. At 5.6%, it's a fraction 
of what Treasury uh, feared uh, during the pandemic, Peter, when they thought it could go as high as 15%. As you know, we've saw, seen consecutive quarters of GDP growth of more than 3%, the first time since 1959. Uh, consumer confidence is at its highest uh, level uh, in 11 years. Business conditions are among the best on record. Uh, we've seen very uh, large numbers of job vacancies and Australia has been able to maintain its AAA credit rating. So we are positive about the economic outlook. The budget will be the next um, phase of our recovery plan, but certainly for both Treasury and the Reserve Bank of Australia, the economy has surprised on the upside. Mm. You, you often as a Treasury get pressured by um, conservative economists, um, commentators who think they know more than treasurers. Uh, they'll say, all right, you've spent a lot of money. It's now time to pull the reins in. And one of the most famous periods in world economic history was the Great Depression. And uh, I, I was reading J.K. Galbraith's book, The Age of Uncertainty, recently, and he re reminded me that in 1938, the Republican politicians talked um, FDR into you know, pulling his reins in and going conservative and, and basically created another recession in 1938 in the US. Are you going to be pressured to be too restrictive too early, Josh? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, I'm very much focused on driving down the unemployment rate and driving uh, up the economic growth number. Hmm. Um, John Cowneth Galbraith also famously said, Peter, that economic forecasting was designed to make astrology look good. Yeah, um, he had a good, he had that sense of humour. But uh, in terms of um, our focus, our focus is to get more people into jobs, to repair the budget by repairing the economy, and by and to also guarantee the essential services. So in the upcoming budget, aged care will feature uh, very highly because we've had a royal commission and. We've got um, challenges that we need to meet in that important sector. But we're also focused on the workforce task, the skills task, um, moving people who have been unemployed into work. Uh, and that will take you know, a, number of, uh, a number of strategies and initiatives, all of which you know, we're outlining in the lead up to the budget and in the budget. A good example of that is the apprenticeships. Uh, we put in place a 50% wage subsidy uh, because we feared that during the economic crisis, the most recent hires, namely the apprentices, could be the first to lose their job. Uh, and we thought it might take a year for 100,000 apprentices to, be, um, to, 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 be, to take up a job under that program, but it took just a matter of months. So we've topped up that program uh, and uh, we've undertaken other, other initiatives as well. Okay. Now, I know you're the kind of guy who never, ever swears, um, <laughs> but when, you, when the AstraZeneca problem turned up, did you, were you tempted to say bugger? Because, you know, the quicker we roll out, or we kill them in terms of beating the infections, the quicker we roll out, the, the better it is for the economy. The fact that it's going to be delayed while we wait for Pfizer for younger people. You must have thought to yourself, bugger. Well, there are some things you can control, Peter, and some things you can't. And to be honest, the, the health um, uh, decisions like that are outside our control.
Mm. Uh, it's not an Australian, um, uh, a unique Australian problem that we're faced with the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's been a global problem and other countries uh, like the UK uh, have acted so, and so have we. Mm. Um, so we put out that, that note of caution about the AstraZeneca vaccine for, for those who are under 50, but we've seen already 1.7 million plus Australians receive the jab. And we don't have um, the same domestic situation with respect to the virus that the UK, the US and other countries do. Mm. We, don't, we haven't seen the, the virus run rampant. We've successfully suppressed it. Uh, domestic borders are open. And uh, just yesterday, I flew from Sydney into Perth on a on a full plane. And the day the days before, I was flying uh, from Canberra into Sydney on full planes. And so we're seeing, you know, across the economy, uh, a lot of movement uh, among 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 people in a COVID safe way. Mm. So, are you confident that by the end of the year, most Australians will? have been vaccinated. And if that's the case, that probably will be good for international travel and, uh, and the economic benefits of it. Is that your, at least your, your first level hope? And, it, and is that hope reasonably realistic? Look, we'll just try to vaccinate as many people as quickly as possible. Um, that, is, that is our goal and there are supply issues which we have sought to, to remedy by accessing, for example, more Pfizer vaccines. Um, we're obviously producing here in Australia um, the AstraZeneca vaccine. That's something that other countries don't have the sovereign capability to do so. So I think we're well placed. Um, interestingly, um, you know, those Australians who are not travelling overseas are spending their money here at home. And, and that, as you know, uh, Peter is contributing to the economy quite nicely. Yeah, exactly. Now, you, you know, you have read that I've been tipping a roaring 20s rerun here. Are we going to have a unity ticket here or do, or do treasurers have to play it more conservatively? Uh, treasurers, including myself, tend to, uh, to be cautious uh, in, their, uh, in their predictions and no better example than the iron ore price, uh, Peter. Uh, we've got it in the budget of $55 a tonne um, today. It's above $170 a tonne, and I'm in Western Australia where they've all got big smiles on their faces. And yes, and earlier today I caught up with uh, Premier Mark McGowan and his state, um, and indeed the resources sector more generally, uh, uh, are doing very nicely out of this very strong iron ore price. So um, my view is that Australia is very well placed uh, for the economic recovery. We've seen strong growth numbers, a strong housing sector, a pipeline of uh, projects uh, supported, for example, with the Home Builder Initiative. We've got business investment incentives, which are going to support around $200 billion worth of investment and are already making a difference. Uh, we've got an infrastructure pipeline that we've extended by more than $10 billion. We've got 300,000 new training places. We've got the apprenticeship wage subsidy, and we've got a host of other programs, all of which are designed to support economic activity. And you also know that um, confidence is the cheapest form of stimulus, uh, Peter, and we've got uh, $240 billion that has been accumulated on household and business balance sheets. That was not there this time last year. 
money that people have cautiously saved or been unable to spend because they've been unable to, to get around the country because of the health restrictions. Um, that money will be spent over time. And I think that will add very substantially to the economic momentum. Yeah, good point. Um, and I must admit, the, the last time there was a, a massive boom uh, in WA, I laughed because um, the, the treasurer there's name was Ripper. It was a ripper of an economy. And I remember saying at one, one speech that um, the people in Perth are so happy with themselves, they have to eat a lemon every morning just to wipe the smile off their face. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's go to the next challenge for a treasurer, where you may well once again have said, bugger, is this the China Chinese relationship. You know, clearly, if we weren't having a blue with China and there weren't trade bans, It'd be a perfect world for a, an Australian treasurer, wouldn't it? Well, China is a very important economic partner for Australia. They're the largest trading partner. They're a major investor. Uh, and uh, and with, with 1.3 billion people, they're a huge market. And they paid traditionally a premium price for some of the, uh, some of the produce. Now, my view is that the iron ore that we sell to, to China uh, will continue to be uh, mutually, uh, that will be a continually to be a mutually beneficial trading relationship, particularly because China can't access high quality or indeed the same quantity of iron ore from other countries as they can from Australia. And they're the world's largest steel exporter, they're still developing as an economy. They're going to need our own iron ore for their growth story. With respect to other agricultural products that they've, you know, put some restrictions on. Um, our agricultural producers have turned to turned out to be very resilient, and I have identified other markets, which is a which is a positive sign. So I'm I'm confident that the Australian economy will continue to go forward despite those challenges with China, but it is you know no doubt. Um, a challenging time for that relationship, uh, particularly because um, that the Chinese have taken you know, great exception, as you can see from their public comments about some of the steps that we have taken, but steps that we don't resolve from, steps that are important in terms of promoting the national interest, whether they are foreign investment, uh, whether they are related to the Belt and Road, whether they are related um, um, to, to human rights. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a chance now to say, I don't talk about leaks, but one, <laughs> one interesting leak is that the super levy, you're going to allow it to go up and then maybe let people choose to take the last 2% as either super or wages. Was that, was that a really believable leak, Treasurer? Well, I don't believe in leaks. There you have it, you see. You've written my own lines there, um, Pete. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't comment on the day-to-day -day, um, commentary in the paper about budget speculation. Um, but as you know, there's been lots of, lots of words spoken about the superannuation guarantee, including from our Reserve Bank Governor from the Grattan Institute, uh, who have talked about the impact that it does have on, um, on, on, on people's incomes. Well, I love writing the headline. Now, I don't always write my headlines, but I love writing the headline that, you know, um, Former Prime Minister Paul Keating 
has praised the Morrison government. That, that would have had an interesting reaction in maybe uh, um, uh, Elizabeth Bay. <laughs> well, um, you know, the fact is he's talking a lot about super because he doesn't have confidence in the Labor Party to prosecute his arguments. Let's not, let's not be too nasty now. Uh, one <laughs> final one, what about tax cuts? We, it, it, you like the idea of tax cuts to stimulate the economy even further? Well, we are the party of lower taxes and we took to the last election um, a significant uh, policy agenda or reform agenda around um, the tax system. We subsequently legislated those tax cuts uh, and in last year's budget, we brought forward by two years stage two of those tax cuts and also put in an additional year of the low and middle income tax offset. That money is now flowing through into people's pockets to the tune of more than a billion dollars a month. And so that's important again in rewarding effort, enabling Australians to keep more of what they earn and adding to the overall uh, level of econ economic activity because the biggest beneficiary of those tax cuts has been low and middle income earners. And as you know, um, money in the pockets of low and middle income earners uh, is more likely to be spent than saved. And so that's, that's going to be helpful for the recovery. So um, we are the party of lower taxes. Our political opponents have proven to be the party of higher taxes and the Australians, uh, Australian people made their choice very clear at the last election. Gee, I hope I can uh, you know, replay those words on uh, the second Tuesday in, um, in May. One, one final question. I always, I always think this is, this is a good question. I kind of assume... How come you've, you've got nine final questions? I love that. You're redefining the English language for me, Pete. Yeah, right? well, the thing is this. I'm unusual in the media in the sense that I actually listen to the answers and then think, what do my viewers want me to ask next? And so... I like, I like that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm stretching your charity. One last one. No, of course. What, what, given the fact that I assume you know more about the budget than me, <laughs> what, would be the, what would be a really good question for me to ask you and then you give me the answer to it? Is it going to strengthen the economy? Oh, come on, even you better. <laughs> no, we're playing games here. Um, look, um, the, if you ask me what the, the key themes for the budget are, yeah. uh, they're about jobs and they're about services. Services because uh, we are focusing on aged care, mental health, and other support. Um, and it's not just extra money. It's actually reform in these areas to get better quality outcomes for the people who are receiving those services. And you can only guarantee the services when you have a strong economy. And the way to get a strong economy is to drive down welfare dependency and to drive up employment. And the fact that we've seen uh, our employment levels now get above what they were pre-pandemic is a sign that the economic plan is working, but there's still a lot of work to be done. If you speak, if you speak to businesses here in WA or indeed in other parts of the country, one of the challenges they face is workforce shortages. Mm. And so being able to skill up the next wave of workers for those um, sectors in need is really important. So too with um, an aging population, uh, we're seeing more people uh, be provided with aged care services. The NDIS has expanded very significantly. That means we've got greater, a greater need for an expanded care workforce. 
again, that produces its own challenges. So we're dealing with workforce issues, we're dealing with guaranteeing essential services and putting that overall in a narrative designed to strengthen the economy. We're not out of the, uh, we're not out of this crisis yet. We can't take our foot off the pedal. It's not a time for austerity. It's not a time for higher taxes. That's going to be our focus. Yeah. Treasurer, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.